everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And man, I have to tell you guys, this week I am recording from a hotel room in San Francisco where I am at the Structure Security Conference, so expect some good things about security, probably not this week, next week, on the show. And the sound quality may be a little bit wonky. I really am sorry. But Kevin's going to make up for it because he's so cheap. I'll, I'll, ta- I'll talk twice as nice. Twice as nice. First, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on this show. We've got the new Wink Hub coming out. Finally, the details are live. Amazon is working with some smart home companies to deliver packages inside your home. Kevin's got a review of the Apple Watch 2 as a fitness tracker. We're going to have to talk about Krebs and its giant DDoS attack enabled by hacked IoT devices. We've got some news Mm. from SAP, Snapchat, Particle Board, and maybe we'll get to some other people's reviews about cool stuff you can buy. And we have a wonderful ad from HPE. And then finally, our guest is Carlos Herrera, the CEO of PetNet, which you guys may remember because it is a service that went down and everybody was worried about dead dogs. But Carlos tells us everything that happened and what he learned from it. It's a good interview. So stay tuned for a moment from a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Arm. Nothing highlights IoT security more than a hacked car driven into a ditch. Charlie Miller, part of the team that hacked a Jeep in 2015, will keynote Arm's TechCon in 2016 at their October 25th through 27th event. Miller will describe how he and his partner infiltrated a moving vehicle and how we can tighten security across the network. So join Arm this month in Santa Clara for Arm TechCon and register today at armtechcon.com. I will be there. So I hope to see y'all. Okay. Hopefully you're not going to be in a Jeep. No Jeeps. There are no Jeeps in my immediate future. So good. Let's talk about not hacked Jeeps, although we'll get to hacked cameras. Uh, (laughs) I don't think there's word that a Jeep is involved in the, in the DDoS attack. That would be terrible. Um, Yeah. For so many reasons. All right. The new Wink Hub. We had heard that this was coming from a leaked Amazon screenshot and some, I think, stuff at the Home Depot. And lo Mm -hmm. and behold, in October, Wink will be providing us with a brand new hub. And it has an Ethernet port, which, Kevin, you are not excited by, but some people might find it useful. I'm not really moved by that, but I do think it's a good addition. And it's going to have Bluetooth. The reason Bluetooth is so exciting is it can act as a link for your Bluetooth-enabled things like a doorbell, and it translates it over the Wi-Fi network, and suddenly you have remote access to all of this stuff in your house without all these little like Bluetooth bridges that you have to plug in. And so mm-hmm. that's cool. The other reason that Bluetooth is exciting is a new thing that Wink did that's going to make actually setting up IoT devices easier. And this only happens during the initial setup. But during the initial setup, you're instead of relying on the soft AP creation, which is what we call it when the connected device you're plugging in creates its own Wi-Fi hotspot, and then your phone has to find it, and they, they transfer mm-hmm. the credentials and everything happens. Right, like the Echo does, yeah. Yeah, sometimes that doesn't work. Like I know on my Android, because my phone is like trying so hard to keep me online, I have to turn off the cellular data on my phone to actually mm. hook things up to my device because my phone otherwise is like it never works so yeah the phone the phone's trying to get that redundant connection because it thinks you want to be connected all the time obviously and that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah it hates when like adding a device yeah. using my android is always like uh. so the bluetooth connection though allows the data about why something's messing up to 
it tells the device. It's like, oh, stop doing this. So now they've built software that makes it a lot easier to connect things. And this will be nice for people who are like a little bit more normal, who are like not listeners perhaps of this show and are like, I did not know I could turn off my cellular data on my phone. And that is going to be wonderful. The other thing they added as part of the setup process is if you have an old hub, you can actually transfer everything over. The Staples Connect hub actually did this, but since it's no longer on the market, this mm. makes Wink useful. So if you have an old Wink, though, you might be saying, gosh, do I upgrade? Kevin, were you saying that? Yeah, I, I'm kind of I'm on the fence on this. And I'm a, I'm a big fan slash user of the Wink Hub that I bought maybe a year and a half ago. It's worked fantastic for me. My entire smart home is built around it. The fact that this one is 25% slimmer, it's nice. That's okay. It's not a compelling reason to me. Adding Ethernet, personally not compelling to me. However, I can definitely see why people might want that. I actually prefer a wireless connection with the Wink Hub because I can put it anywhere then. It doesn't have to hang off a router. That was one of the actual selling points to me. But again, this is a, a, a bonus for, for a lot of people, I'm sure. In terms of radios, they've also added a thread-capable radio, and really there's not much that takes advantage of that. So that's not yet a compelling reason to upgrade. So hmm. I, I will tell you, Tell me. They're not HomeKit compatible at this moment. Mm -hmm. There is a place for a HomeKit radio, but you can't a get it. place for it. You can't get a HomeKit <laughs> radio until you're you're actually part of the HomeKit club. It's like correct. Club. So that is TBD. So if HomeKit is important to you, this may not be the hub for you. I'll just yet. lay it yet. So yet. keep an eye out. Right, right. right. It may. Right. I mean, but again. Who knows? I do like, again, not enough for me to upgrade. Uh, I do like the fact that they've, um, I think, upped the memory inside from 64 meg to 512 meg. My hub runs stable, so I haven't run into that issue. One thing I do like, and I'm considering this in my decision-making process here, they have beefed up the security, and I believe, I think they've done it through hardware, in that the Wink Hub, when it boots up, will make sure that it has the same secure, verified firmware that it had the last time it booted up. And if it doesn't, it will be able to revert back to the safe, secure firmware meaning it's a lot less susceptible to being hacked or reprogrammed without your knowledge. So that's something that has me thinking about it. The security efforts they went through here, given that mm -hmm. in the beginning, Wink had a horribly insecure hub. It, it just was. It was hacked multiple times. They, they fixed mm -hmm. it. But that really shows that they are working hard on getting this right. Mm -hmm. And I will say that the new hub is $99 and... They're adding a new retail partner, so it will be available on their site in Home Depot and at Walmart. Yeah, saw that. Saw so, that. That's that's good. Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was really kind of worthwhile because Walmart is definitely mm -hmm. now. I, I also kind of wonder if it's because they burned Target with mm. they had their big giant security flaw and recall kind of thing, and that I think Target was not turn them off. Yeah, that could be. That could well be. It's hard to say. But I mean, so long as there were a mainstream retailer, I think that bodes very, very well for for Wink. Um, one other one other aspect that, again, is on me, has me thinking maybe I upgrade, that new Wi-Fi radio is no longer just 2.4 gigahertz. It actually supports 5 gigahertz as well. Yeah, so that, that's that's pretty big. It's $99. I mean, this is not like a $500 outlay of cash. So 
I say that I'm probably not going to upgrade, but I have a feeling at some point I'm just going to pull the trigger and, and do it anyway. So, in, and I asked, I asked Wink, I was like, what do you tell people who have this? Is this something they should upgrade to? And he's like, you know, you can if you want. We're still supporting the old version. You know, mm-hmm. it, this is this is really a product to get new people in the door. So. And and in that respect, I think it's a very compelling product at that price point for what it supports, the radios, the upgrades, the security. Yeah, I mean, again, um, I bought my Wink. I'm very happy with it. If I didn't have one, without a doubt, I'd probably go out and get this one. So that's our thought there. You could also wait for Christmas and, you know, give someone you love the smart home package because I bet there's going to be some deals. That's my hunch because you've got Walmart, you've got Black Friday, you've got Home Depot, mm-hmm. you've got Black Friday. Good point. So if you're not in any rush, you know, and we, I, I counsel people, don't rush into the smart home. <laughs> no, Don't do what we do. <laughs> don't be crazy like us. You'll end up with old devices that are not necessarily great. So yeah, that's, that's the wink news. I'm excited in for all of us who are like, Oh, quirky went bankrupt. What happens to wink? Oh, Flexbot wink. What happens to wink? Now we can feel a little bit better. I think it, it feels like I think a, so too. a company and a product that we're like, they're behind it. So let's talk about how your wink might be delivered to you. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Yeah, so some people may really like this, whereas other people may really hate this, but Amazon is reportedly working on in-home package deliveries. Not at home, in-home. Your package will be in your house. How will they do that? Well, the information says, and uh, TechCrunch has reported this as well, that Amazon is working with some of its IoT retailers uh, or or the products, uh, some of the things that it sells IoT products with, such as August and Garagio, It's working with them to give temporary access to get in your home to leave a package. That's kind of scary and cool at the same time. So August makes smart locks. Garageo makes um, garage door openers. So in theory, you'd order something from Amazon and give the okay to have the package delivered in your house, provided you have an August lock or a Garageo garage door opener. I don't know. I mean, this is great, Stacey, for people who aren't there to receive packages, don't want them sitting out all the time. Maybe they've had packages stolen. But are you going to give access to your house? So August has this – they've had actually the access program, August access program, for I want to say almost a year now. Um, Mm -hmm. And they will let people into – like people are actually using this for both like – normal people like your maids, your dog walkers, those kind of things, but also for like delivery of services. So it's a formal service that August offers and they have partnerships with like Postmates and I want to say they were working with Sears Appliance Repair, but that could be imaginary. And with the, I mean, the idea is, you know, if you have smart cameras in your house, you can actually watch this happen, which Mm -hmm. if, if the person went into your house and like stole your dog, you could be like, oh, well, that's who did it. Uh, I'm not sure if that's that's comforting <laughs> or not. So so this makes sense. And I love that Amazon might give its imprimatur to this and say, hey, guys, why don't you have that? Like, I, I actually today, today on Wednesday, while we're recording this, I'm getting a makeup delivery at home. And I'm really sad about it because it's going to be really hot. And I feel like my makeup might not, you know, it might mm. be compromised. So I would love the ability or like my Blue Apron deliveries when those right. go inside I just feel slightly better when it's 110 degrees, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 
so I, I definitely see the value. I just wonder what happens the first time something doesn't go right. Like somebody is delivering something in your house and something's missing or they're sitting on your couch watching TV for an hour uh, and you find out what is Amazon going to do? I mean, they're putting potentially their name and brand behind this. That's the surprising bit to me. In a situation like this, I imagine mm -hmm. you'll have a camera. If Amazon actually does create its own network of delivery people with its own airplanes and ah, all that good stuff, true, they could true. actually treat it like bonded employees. I mean, we let people into our homes all the time. Not everybody, but some people do. And you don't have to do this. That's the other thing. I mean, this right, is right. purely voluntary for people who feel like, eh, this is great. You know, yeah, they'll do it. Yeah. And I think having a camera will help. I'm not sure I would do it. But I also work from home, so I'm not sure I really have the need. And mm. I think Amazon just wants as many options as possible. They have the they have the storage lockers. They have what else do they have? They have they might have drones delivering stuff to you one day. They have right, um, right. they're experimenting with putting stuff in the trunk of people's cars. Right. Anything they can do to remove barriers between you and a product, they're doing or trying to do. So I get it. I, again, I think it'll be polarizing. People are either going to love this or hate this. But at the end of the day, you're right. It's it's up to you. If they do decide to offer this, each individual makes a decision. So, And it, by golly, if they're going to offer me discounts, I'm going to be super excited. But then, mm. but then I'll be like, oh, you have to go around to the back door with this, this lock because none of my front doors have this lock. Ah, but it's free delivery if you let us put an ad on your door lock. Oh, <laughs> I'm in. Man, I have bought so many. I have the ad version of the Kindle. And mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I have bought so many $3 books because of that thing. That's there you terrible. go. I'm like, darn, Amazon, you're very good. Okay, so that's cool stuff coming in the services front. Let's talk about the Apple Watch 2 as a fitness tracker since... Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, we didn't get to it last week because we were so busy talking about I don't even know what. Well, that's okay because I literally just got it the night before the last show. So it's probably best that we waited a week because I've now had an extra seven days to determine if it's a good fitness tracker. And I have to say, and just to put some perspective around this, I run every day. I think today is day 111 of my daily running streak. I do track my steps. I'm not so keen on tracking my sleep, which the Apple Watch really does not do effectively, partially because of battery life, partially because there's no native function to do so. But as a fitness tracker, having previously worn the Fitbits and various Android Wear watches, I'm pretty impressed, I have to say. Now, granted, I bought the Series 2 watch, which has GPS, and that is uh, that, that was a key negative for me on the first Apple Watch. I had to run with my phone if I wanted to use the Apple Activity Tracker, which just didn't like running with my phone. So the GPS is working fantastic. I've compared the various seven or eight runs that I've had this with prior runs. GPS looks spot on. The heart rate monitor is kind of disappointing to me, though. I do run with the heart rate monitor on, and it seems like no matter what, every time I start a run, the Apple Watch has my heart rate pegged at around 160 to 170. Good and Lord. This is, yeah. That's like what my eight-and-a-half-minute mile pace is when I've actually been running for a bit, like a couple miles. So it's like, what's going on? The strange thing is usually about halfway through the first mile, it seems to settle down back into the 140s, maybe 150s, but it's throwing off my average heart rate for sure. So that's very strange to me. I don't know why that's doing that. don't know if that's just me and my Apple Watch or others are having that same issue, whatever. How does the heart rate monitor work? Is it is it the lights? Is it a galvanic kind of... 
Yeah, no, it's it's the same as the original Apple Watch. This is totally unchanged. It's the same four LED, um, you know, sensors under the under the uh, the base of the Apple Watch. So, no difference there. And I, I I don't recall this being an issue with with my earlier version. But then again, I was so kind of turned off that it didn't have GPS. I really wouldn't didn't spend a lot of time using it as a fitness tracker. So. Regular heart rate monitoring is fine. I mean, if I check my heart rate now, I'm sure it's you know probably around 65, 70 beats a minute. Um, no, I'm I'm old. <laughs> so that's that's one one quirk. I will also say this: if you want to take your fitness data out of the Apple iOS ecosystem, it is still nearly impossible. There are some third-party apps that try and do this for you. They don't get all the data. Apple has not made it easy to get at shared the data, and that's disappointing to me. I have, I don't know, seven years now of data in RunKeeper, so I like to put my my data in there. I have to do it manually with the Apple Watch, and that's that's frustrating, disappointing. It's it's just yeah, disappointing. One last bit on the GPS. There's no indicator to tell you if the watch has a GPS signal, and I found that frustrating at first. But they do a really good job at using Wi-Fi, assisted GPS, um, and other methods to actually get you a signal pretty quick. You don't know it when it has a signal, yet it's been spot on. So kudos to them on that. I do wish they had an indicator there. So Okay. And then how does it affect the battery life? Yeah, good question, um, because the original Apple Watch was definitely just a, a one-day device on a charge. It pretty much still is. I'm getting marginally better battery life, and that's including the GPS tracking as well as listening to music over my Bluetooth headphones and the heart rate monitor. Typically, if I go out and run anywhere from, you know, say, three to five miles in a day, I still have battery life left at the end of the day. So the GPS isn't hitting it that much, and or Apple has boosted the battery capacity, which I believe they have. This watch is a little thicker. So I think they've done a good job managing that, uh, quite honestly. I can probably answer that question better next show because I'm running a half marathon on Sunday with it, which will be roughly two hours of running. I'm sure to get through it all because Apple says five hours with GPS. So. Okay, well, tune back in next week. All right, in kind of smaller news that we definitely thought we should cover, we have to talk about the DDoS attack against Brian Krebs. And the reason we have to talk about it is apparently this was a between a 600 and 700 gigabit per second DDoS attack, which is freaking huge. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of the devices that were in this attack were actually security cameras, IP security cameras, and some smart TVs. So that's insane. That's another reason to like lock down your connected devices because my God, um, mm-hmm. that's actually at this event that I'm in. We'll talk about it next week because I've got a bunch more IoT stuff happening today. But one of the big themes is people keep bringing up this attack and they're like, look, having connected devices everywhere and just bringing them into your home, bring them into your business, you know, increases your attack surface, but it also increases the tools that hackers can use to attack people. And because these are devices that people, you know, it's, you can tell when your computer's infected, you know, for the Mm -hmm. most part, but because you don't check in on your IP camera very often, and because hackers are very savvy about how to use it, these things can be infected and be part of like a botnet army for years. They can be conscripted and you never know. 
I was just going to say, you'd never know. As long as you're getting you know, your camera feed on command or on demand, you don't know what else that processor inside that device is doing with the connection that it has. So you, you just wouldn't know. Exactly. So there's a lot of talk out there about this being a threat against free speech because Brian Krebs was actually taken down by, or his site was actually attacked in his security provider, Prolexic, which is part of Ak- Akamai. They said, hey, you know what? We're doing this for you for free. We had to absorb, you know, almost 700 gigabits per second of traffic. Mm-hmm. We can't do this. So now he's actually under Google has their shield project for journalists. So kudos to Google for, for having that because they, they are, they're now hosting the site for him. But all in all, this is just a this is just kind of scary in not just for the consumer, but for the world at large that this is going to be out there. And that, that seems to be a big concern for a lot of people. The thing here is with the proliferation of so many connected devices, I suspect this is not the first time uh, or not the last time rather that we're going to see this. I mean, so many of them really are insecure and people don't realize that. And we've harped on this before. Security of a device should be part of your decision making process. And so I'll, I'll tie this. There was a there was a story about I think it was a Texas mom. I can't remember if it was Austin or Houston. And their baby camera was hacked. And what was interesting here is they were like, look, we actually changed the password on the camera from, you know, password or admin or whatever it was. You know, we changed that. And what happened was they hadn't changed their password on their router. So Mm -hmm. I'm bringing this up because we hear a lot today about this is how you solve this. You change the password on your device. And I feel like most sophisticated consumers are aware of this. But now you got to go back and be like, oh, my router password. Time to change that. It's it's a whole chain of devices. That's the thing. And and. I think people will miss out on that and they just will do what you had just suggested. They'll change the password on a particular device to say, okay, now the problem is fixed. And yet the weak link in the chain is not fixed. So it's actually getting kind of crazy. I mean, you almost have to be an IT network admin to start really making sure that you're 100% secure. Yes, and that's not tenable. It's not. While we think about that, maybe next week I'll have a brand new security model. We'll have a so- I'll come back with a solution. Probably not, guys, but we'll talk about it. All right. And let's see. Other cool news. SAP has decided they're going to spend up to $2 billion in IoT investments. They started out by buying a company called Plat One. That is kind of a Jasper-like service that offers connectivity and ties into SAP's HANA platform and all that good stuff that they're doing with IoT. And they also bought a company in, I want to say it was Norway, called Fedum. And that does kind of vision stuff, vision stuff. They see the future. Just, it sees things. Yeah. It sees things. Um, <laughs> it does computer vision and also is part of creating a digital twin. And this is a concept that's super popular in the industrial internet. And it, it's a cool concept. It comes from NASA. And the idea is that in the real world, you have a device or a piece of machinery, and it is so outfitted with sensors that you can create a digital version of it that you can like do all kinds of crazy cool testing on and see how things affect it. And it's I think it's kind of a fun thing. And if you imagine like AR, you could impose mm. your digital twin on the physical device. Woo. Anyway. Ooh, scary. SAP's not actually doing that stuff, but they <laughs> did buy Fedum, which has the digital twin kind of capabilities. So that's that's good news for them. Keeping keeping the investment going. This is a good thing for you, Kevin, because it involves Google, so we should give you your disclosure. Oh yes, I consult for Google, uh, but not in their smart home area at all so 
my opinions are my own. So Particle, a developer board, they have teamed up with Google Cloud to send data from physical devices directly into the Google Cloud platform for analyzing. And I actually thought this was kind of cool because it Particle has its own cloud, so they're tying into the Google stuff. And because Google has this like crazy information kind of world, I can see Google like God help us creating a digital twin of everything over time. <laughs> but they, they've actually been experimenting with particle boards and tying data from their G bikes with the particle asset hmm. trackers. And they're showing basically how they can track these things, see what, you know, see usage patterns and do all this cool like data visualization. That sounds like a very googly thing to do. And I do love the bikes, by the way. I ride them every time I go out there. Interestingly, this ties into a theme that we heard at Google I.O., um, and it's continued in some of the newer products that Google has announced, and that's machine learning. Google's really making a machine learning push. So this is a really nice tie-in, I think. Yeah, because machine learning is great about looking for like clusters and patterns mm -hmm. once it's been trained on what to look for and what to optimize for. And mm -hmm. There's going to be so much data from putting sensors in the world. We're going to have to rely on computers to start like helping us filter it. And I just think it'll be fascinating to see, like you can imagine, you know, looking at bikes and where they're parked and where they are, you'll, you'll be able to see like cool usage patterns, like where people tend to cluster during what parts of day. And I don't know, mm -hmm. I get excited. No, it's, I completely agree. Maybe not about the bikes so much, but, you know, imagine I like, the, I like the bikes. You like the bikes. Okay. <laughs> and then finally, Snapchat glasses. Yeah, from a new company. Well, not a new company. A newly named company. Snap. Ta-da. No, no more chat. <laughs> no more chat. We're just taking pictures now. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kevin, you want to talk about these? Yeah, this this is kind of interesting only because, um, not to tie into a whole Google theme here, but Google Glass, which I think was 2013 was available, really got panned, mainly because the creepy factor of having a camera that could take pictures or record video and so on. And yet, this is exactly what the Snapchat glasses do. But then again, this is Snapchat's business model, right? It's all about sharing snaps, videos, and so on with your social friends. So so these are um, sunglasses that will, I think they cost $129 when they become available. And they have a camera built in, obviously, and they will literally record short snaps of, of videos. Uh, and there, I believe there's a light to tell you, to let others there around is. you know. Yeah, okay. To let others know that, that that's actually recording. And then it will automatically send these circular videos. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, that's how they're differentiating these. To your friends on Snapchat. So Which, importantly, are ephemeral. Mm -hmm. They disappear. It's after 24 hours, I think. Uh, yeah, used to be a lot less than that, but I think it is up to 24 hours now. They have a couple different ways. I, I'm not on the Snapchat these days. I couldn't tell you. Not with the kids. You're not hip and cool. I'm not either. Well, that's that's why I actually joined it, not to be hip and cool, but to see what my kids were doing. And when I saw what they were doing, I'm like, no, I don't need to see this anymore. So I, I got off the Snapchat. I hope it was all innocent fun, Kevin. <laughs> it was fun. I don't know about innocent, but yeah, whatever. The kids some, some discussions were had let's just say that okay <clears throat> so yes i th i think i will be curious about their reception because it might be a wonderful example of just it being the right time so the generational mm -hmm. shift between google glass and these yes. might be enough to be like yeah we don't care about privacy anymore 
we can walk into bars with crazy teal coral or black sunglasses and just be like yeah i'm recording this Woo-woo. i don't like it but i i yeah i think it's interesting i think you're spot on i think it, the demographic is very different and it will be more readily accepted by the younger demographic and that's fine i mean times are changing yeah i mean you got your phone with you i'd say just use your phone but that's just me I will I will say that using your phone is a pain because you have to pull it out, take the camera, you know, wait for I mean, it, and it's not okay. A pain is really the wrong with like talk about first world problems. It's such a pain to take a picture with my phone. <laughs> but you do lose a moment. Whereas if you the fact that there's sunglasses is kind of nice because it's not like you're going to be walking around inside with. You know, this is, this feels kind right. of like an outdoor fun. People might already be mm-hmm. in public places, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And maybe that was Google Glasses over step, as they they made it too much, always kind of. on kind of in your face, scary. Yeah. Whereas a pair, of, like if someone's walking around outside and has a pair of sunglasses on, is taking my picture. If I'm outside, you know, I'm probably other people can see me. I feel like I'm in a more public place. Mm-hmm. So that's. It's a small difference. I will also yeah, say. Yeah, and, and they, they look different. I mean, they Google Glass look like, to some degree, a, a small computer strapped to your glasses frame. Yes, so you look like the Terminator. The, it was, I mean, yeah, it was scary. I did. I, I still have pictures of myself wearing those things. Yes. Uh, there you go. And hopefully Snapchat <laughs> will not have their Robert Scoble in the shower moment. And maybe that's all they need. Maybe that's all they oh, need. I hope not. I'm sorry to bring that up. Um, so <laughs> Some real... things cannot be unseen. I know. It's sad. <laughs> um, okay. So real fast, we're just going to say uh, the Sweet Home, which is mm. a wonderful site. It's part of the Wirecutter site. It, it's yep. actually the Wirecutter that did this review. I don't know. I like the Sweet Home. I bought sheets based on their recommendation. So they have decided that the best Wi-Fi home security camera is now no longer the nest it is now the oh i'm gonna say i i always i always feel nervous saying this the logitech logi circle um which is about 170 dollars on amazon they like it because it has a lot of really awesome features and it doesn't have the subscription plan so yay yay um, i'm so anti-subscription plan <laughs> i i am too although so our last week's guest talked about uh, it was Canary CEO, and they actually mm-hmm. have a new plan they call membership, where mm-hmm. and his whole point was like it's not just about cloud storage. You have to offer a real service. So theirs is if your home is burglarized, they will help you call them up and they they tell you like what you need to do with your insurance firm, with the police. They help you out, which feels kind of nice, like mm-hmm. hand holding during a, a dark time. But the Wirecutter's second choice is the Netgear Arlo Q, which is expensive. But is apparently very nice, and their budget pick is the Blink, which I have once suggested to people that they should stick it in their fridge so they can get like a, a visual of what's inside their refrigerator, because this is like a hundred dollar security camera, and it's ridiculously easy to just like stick on the wall. I love mm. this thing. And then the Nest Cam is like a yeah, yeah. If you really like smart home stuff, it connects to a lot of stuff. So that I thought was worth mentioning it because people really love their their home security cameras despite the thing might be involved in DDoS attacks. Well, yeah, but if they're going to get the Amazon in-home package delivery service, then they may want this. They do. So (laughs) stay tuned for our message from our sponsor, HPE, and our guest, Carlos Herrera, who is the CEO of PetNet. You are really going to like this one. I promise. 
Hey everyone, we are going to take a break for a moment for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is HPE, and we have Nigel Upton, who is the director for HPE's Universal IoT platform. Hi, Nigel. You told me about this concept of any device, any network. What do you mean by that? There are so many different types of things in the Internet of Things. As you know, there are literally millions of them, and all things are not created equal. So a thing like a connected doorbell or a smart refrigerator is very different to a complex piece of machinery that has sensors all over it in, say, an aircraft engine or in the middle of a manufacturing plant. And our premise is that if all things are not connected equally, there is a different sense of priority and usually a different type of network that you can connect to that's appropriate for the right type of device. So, Nigel, what kind of networks are you thinking of? Usually when you think of things like connected cars, then you think about cellular connectivity, and that's a really good fit for the type of connectivity for a connected car. But if you think about, say, a doorbell, then Wi-Fi would be much more appropriate because it would normally connect into your home Wi-Fi. But we have so many use cases where you think about some of the newer emerging technologies like the long-range, low-power wide area networks uh, with organizations like the LoRa Alliance or companies like Sigfox um, are making tremendous strides. A great example is a company we were talking to this week. They were looking at how to digitize a palm tree. The process they wanted to use was to be able to digitally manage how these trees are grown. And so they put sensors in the ground and they use a LoRa network to be able to connect the sensors together. They then gather the data, put it through a gateway, do some pre-processing, and then send the metadata through a satellite link. Because in this particular case, it's one of the largest uh, plantations in Malaysia. And the only connectivity choice they have is satellite. There is no other choice. How does HPE come into all of this? With HPE, we've developed a platform which is absolutely agnostic on any type of device over any type of network. And so we work with our clients to ensure that they choose the appropriate network, whether it's based on latency or whether it's based on cost for the type of deployment of devices or things that they're actually doing. And I would encourage any purchaser of any IoT platform to think carefully about making sure that you have a platform that is open to allow you to be able to make the choice of network for the right type of device. And Nigel, where could I find out more? You can find out more at our website at hpe.com forward slash IoT. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is Stacey Higginbotham, and this week's guest is Carlos Herrera, who is the CEO of PetNet. Hi Carlos, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. I am really excited to talk to you. One, because I have a dog that, you know, needs food. And two, because you guys had a well-publicized outage earlier this summer, and you're willing to talk about what happened, what you learned, and what other people who are building connected products can think about going forward is, let's first talk about PetNet and what you guys are building. So at PetNet, our, our mission is, is very simple. It's to help pet owners the right tools so that they could feed their pet the right amount of food 
specifically for their pet and also to help guide them to the right type of food, meaning matching the right ingredients to their pet's endemic qualities or pet's nutritional needs. So you have a $149 self-dispensing pet feeder, and then you have a $49 connected bowl that will basically tell you when to stop pouring food in to meet your dog or cat's nutritional needs. That, that's exactly right. They're both, um, they have a companion app. When you onboard to the device, we ask you some really key questions about your pet. We ask them about your, their age, weight, level of activity. We'll also ask them about their breed and eventually we'll ask them about allergies. The reason we ask these questions is so that then we can figure out how many calories they should be eating per day. People are overfeeding their pets. Almost half the, the world, and the, there's almost a billion domestic cats and dogs around the world. Almost half of them are obese or overweight. Uh, and there's ways to, to prevent this, and it's just about having the right tools. So this brings us to, you guys have had this out on the market for a while. Yeah, we launched the Smart Feeder, the first product, in uh, August of 2015. So it's our one-year anniversary of having the, the product out on market. Okay, so about that time, you guys went down for about 12 hours because of a server issue, and people were upset. Yeah. There was a lot of like, oh my God, about holiday, what if my dog died or my cat died? And much has been made of this. Absolutely. What I thought was really surprising was when I asked you about this, you said that you guys were actually from the aerospace industry, which I think of like as having so many redundancies and being so careful. So I'd love to understand how you guys got to that point. You know, we, we come from a very, our, our core team comes from a very strict engineering background. And when we noticed this particular failure, which um, made it so that our, our customers who are trusting us, when it went down, we were, we were as furious as they were. We actually went down at about 8 p.m. Pacific time and we were up until 8 a.m. <laughs> the next day lo looking for a fix. You know, when you're when you're designing these very large scale engineering systems, um, you, know, you can you can choose your path. You can make it a closed system. You can make it an open system. And you know, in the in the world we live in now, everyone's more inclined to build an open system because you end up integrating with pieces of the system that other companies are just better at. You know, they're they're better at building distributed real time data distribution. What we wanted to do is ensure that we were leaning on the, those capabilities, leaning on those companies who are experts at this. So we end up with a system that is integrated to third-party services. And a lot of IoT companies are built this way because if you really wanted to close a system um, and say, hey, we'll build everything, you'll never finish. You'll never bring your product to market with the amount of money that you have. So the system that we built has redundancies in place, but a lot of the we see a lot of failures that are small that our customers don't even notice. Uh, we build redundancies for them immediately, but a lot of them, we see them as we encounter them, right? And once we encounter them, then we're building the redundancy. That, and that's different than kind of the aerospace world where, you know, you're building aircraft and these aircraft have to stay in the air forever, all the time. You can't have any failures. And these the aircraft systems are designed and developed on a 20-year cycle, right? You know, we in the IoT world, we build things in a two-year cycle, right? So you, you end up sacrificing a lot of test time in order to get your product to market. And at the same time, a lot of test time costs as much as development time. So you really just don't have the budget to test everything. So you really have to just be on your toes and ensure that you can react quickly. 
And a, and a plane costs, you know, several millions or tens of millions of dollars versus a $150 pet feeder. So how many third parties were in your system? And how do you think that compares to other IoT kind of startups? For us, we have uh, seven third-party integrations. And all these third-party integrations, we vet them, right? They're, they're not small companies. I won't, I won't mention any of them, but they're large billion-dollar publicly traded companies. They're, they build their systems with redundancies in place. And, you know, any one of these can fail. The key to it all is to build a system that can quickly react and switch over to a redundant system. The redundant systems are usually a little less capable, right? So you end up with more processing, less bandwidth, but it keeps the system up and and going. So the key to it all is to try to predict all the potential failures and write software to detect and fail over as quickly as possible. A lot of people saw this outage as a good example of a reason why to, why companies should put intelligence on the device. So in the case of, you know, some the internet going out, servers failing somewhere else, everything can default back to the physical device and you get basic functionality. So your pet still gets fed. In the in the aerospace world, we call that a no comm scenario, no communications. And the, the interesting thing is in the IoT world, you're very dependent on communications, but you have to design the system so that if you lose communications for any amount of time, whether it's one second, one minute, 12 hours in our case, your system can still do the basic functionality. So with every, every scenario where you lose a particular capability, in this case, we lost communications to, from our servers to our devices, the devices still have to work. And we, well, you end up losing a little capability, like you lose the real-time connectivity where you get the updates, right? Because there's a way for the updates to come out of your home all the way to our servers and then down to your phone. But what still remained was the ability to feed your pet, right? And what's interesting is that we built that in. That was actually a capability that is in the system, was in the system prior to the failure. So everyone's pets were fed. What happened was people weren't getting the updates to their phone, Right. And you guys did a great job on communication. I mean, sending out a proactive email saying, hey, by the way, this is happening. I think it did get lost that the pets were actually fed. That may be the media's fault. So I'm real sorry about that. Certainly, we, we didn't react on the media front. Was, I, I call this kind of like startup learning exercise, right? We we didn't know how to react to a crisis. We're so busy just building cool stuff. And we're like, oh, this is awesome. Let's build this capability that we, we, we weren't prepared for the media getting a hold of the story at 8 p.m. where, you know, in the other side of the world, it's 8 a.m. And the, the, the story is going live and it's spreading. And it's well as it should. It's, it's a very important issue. People are trusting that we are feeding their pets. And here we are with pet owners are not receiving confirmation that their pets are being fed. And and that turns into panic in, in a sort of way, right? You know, as a startup, we, we are attempting to build a communications infrastructure PR-wise that can react quickly to that. Now we know. We learned our lesson. But, you know, rest assured on the engineering side, you know, your pets were fed at the time that was scheduled. What else would you, like, I can see some some really obvious learnings. Like, so you've integrated lots of partners. Are there steps as part of that integration that you can take as an entrepreneur to help maybe increase your reliability or maybe just, I, I'm like 
the importance of dashboarding. What, what do we take away as the learnings from this? We need to build out more tools that can help detect these failures more quickly, you know, and, and not just tools so that we wake up the engineering team and they start to create a fix, but also alert our, our PR partners and our marketing team, you know, to prepare for, for the backlash because people are paying attention. They're trusting these devices. It's a smart home. That's the value proposition. You know, the smart home is taking care of this for me. And when it doesn't, people get upset. Just as if I had someone helping me out in the home, you know, if they didn't do their job, I'd be upset at them because that's what, that's, that's the value proposition that you're paying for. So we need to understand as a company, and I think all IoT companies need to understand that the, the value proposition needs to be real. It needs to always work. And when it doesn't work, you need to prepare for, for those scenarios. So in the software world, there's this concept of move fast and break things, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm very curious because a lot of people think that's a very Silicon Valley ethos, but it, it also kind of feels like maybe not the right kind of mindset for a hardware company. What do you think about that as like a mantra, just in general? I think, I think it fits, to be honest. You, you have to move fast. What happens with hardware, however, you can only move as fast as you can test and iterate through things. And in software, you can iterate through versions quickly. I mean, you can walk over to someone's desk, say, hey, can you try this, get another build out in your test servers and you're up and running. With hardware, it's a little different. You, you do get the, the software part. Every, all hardware has software. However, if there's an issue with your hardware, small issue we had back in August of last year, I would say a few hundred customers were affected. In order to fix that piece of hardware, it took us three months, right? We had to re-engineer, retool, get that new tool back to production, make sure that what was coming out of the factory was what we wanted. And finally, finally, we had to ocean freight, which takes another month. And after that, <laughs> we have to truck the product to the stores, and they, finally the new customers are moving. The, their, so we, we moved fast and we broke things, but when it comes to hardware, you're governed by the hardware manufacturing process. You have to follow that process to a T. And do you think some of this is a functionality of you guys being a startup and a bigger company wouldn't have these kind of challenges, possibly because they're building in a more closed system? You know, we have a lot of advisors. Um, a lot of them, uh, many of them are big corporations that have built consumer electronics for decades. And you'd be surprised, they have the same issues. What they, what they, the luxury they have is they have larger budgets and they have more time. So with a startup, you know, the, the fundraising cycle, the VC fundraising cycle pushes on the schedule, right? You need to have minimum viable product. Then you need to be in market within the second year. Then you need to be able to scale within the third year. And you hear all these terms and you're like, man, I'm moving fast. Where a company that has been due they have an eight-year product development cycle. And in those eight years, they're not just developing one version, they're developing five, and they're doing marketing research, and they're calling in groups of people to test and provide feedback. And by the time they get to eight, to the eight, they're like, we are 99% confident this product is going to work. We are 99% confident that people are going to buy this. And that was eight years later. <laughs> and there's benefits to that. There's also some big challenges to that because if you're designing something eight years ago 
and you know you could arguably say that it's it's already obsolete by the time you get to market so I think with with larger with a larger company, you do get a more robust, reliable IoT product. However, you don't get the innovation, the cutting edge technology, because a lot of these systems were just designed, you know, five to eight years ago. Imagine five to eight years ago, what, what didn't we have? I was like, <laughs> I eight I, years ago was when the App Store launched. It was only a year after exactly. the iPhone, so it's exactly. an eternity. So, um, it, it's an eternity, exactly. So I think there's pluses and minuses and. There's a balance, and I think a lot of the innovation that comes out of startups has to be balanced with agility and just awesome people in the company that can react quickly, that can build solutions to account for the flaws as fast as possible. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for explaining all of this, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week on the Internet of Things podcast. And if you don't get enough IoT news from this show, feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyoniot.com. 